Welcome to Corestruction, a show about the missions of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I'm your host, Brandon Parrish. Today we have Dr. David Williams. Dr. Williams is the Chief of Hydrology and Hydraulics Engineering here at the Tulsa District. When you talk about higher education in Oklahoma, Dr. Williams is probably the epitome of that. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Tulsa, and he holds graduate degrees from the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University. In addition to his full-time position with USACE, he's an adjunct professor at Oklahoma State University, where he teaches an undergraduate course in fluid dynamics and a graduate course in floodplain management. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brandon. It's great to be here today. What is hydrology and hydraulics, first of all? Well, in the context of what we do, hydrology is all about the water cycle. How much rain falls, when the rain does fall, how much infiltrates, how much evaporates, and really key for us, how much runs off. And then when we talk about hydraulics, we're talking about the movement of that water through our rivers and streams and into our reservoirs. So uh, how many people do you have in, in your entire H&H section that you oversee? In the hydrology and hydraulics branch, we have just under 40 total employees, uh, both engineers and technicians. And, and I guess we'll start um, because all of our water managers, I believe, are, are engineers, correct? Engineers or hydrologists. Or hydrologists. Yes. And what is the difference between hydrologists uh, when you say hydrologist, what does that mean? Because I know I've had interactions with other engineers in the past, and some of them like it, some of them don't, <laughs> some of them are indifferent. Right. So in the context of federal employment, a hydrologist is someone who has a related degree. It's a science degree that deals with water, but it's not specifically an engineering degree. So we have civil engineers, uh, we have agricultural engineers in our branch, but we also have uh, employees who are coded as hydrologists who have those related science degrees. Okay. And um, I guess we'll start with those, those stream gaugers, you know, because they're the ones who are, who are telling us what's coming into the rivers. Can you explain what they do and how that relates to the bigger picture in water management? Absolutely. So the stream gauge uh, program is a vital part of what we do. We, we could not execute our water management mission um, with the success that we do without them. What they do is maintain a number of gauges for us. And when I say number, it's it's uh, upwards of 100. So we rely on the USGS, the, the US Geological Survey, to provide us data from a lot of gauges. However, we have our own program, our in-house program as well, where we own and operate a number of gauges. Uh, so every one of the reservoirs has gauges, but we also have a lot of gauges, uh, both upstream and downstream along the rivers. And so the stream gaugers on a normal day, and they're out in the field most of the time. So on a normal day, they're out calibrating any number of these gauges, making sure they're, they're working properly, providing data back to us. Um, those gauges monitor stream flow. They also monitor precipitation. So that's a normal day. When we get into flood situations, that team is out making flow measurements, um, putting themselves at risk because you know they're going toward a flood and um, they take instrumentation with them where they're able to measure what the flow of those flooded streams are. And then we use that 
to calibrate our gauges so that we know how much flow is coming into the reservoirs and also how much flow is leaving the reservoirs. And, and direct runoff into reservoirs because, well, I guess that's measured at the res at the dam, right? That the direct runoff. It is. Okay. Yes. So yeah, that, that would be a whole separate, whole separate issue. Um, when we talk about those, those streams, we often use the term channel capacity. Yes. Um, explain channel capacity in layman's terms. <laughs> so in layman's terms, channel capacity is how much water can the river hold without spilling out uh, into the uh, overbank area or the areas outside of the channel. Once it spills out of the river, at that point, it's a flood. Now, it may be very minor and it may be significant, but once it leaves the channel, it's a flood. And so the way we operate is we make releases at these flood control dams so that in conjunction with the local runoff, we are not exceeding channel capacity downstream from the dam. That's how we operate. So are, um, directly downstream, because usually there's a gauge, like there's a gauge at the dam that tells you how high the water level is. And then what, several miles downstream, usually there's another gauge somewhere or, or, or is it just vary? It varies. Uh, for example, below Keystone, there's a, a gauge in Tulsa, um, just west of downtown Tulsa. There's a gauge downstream at Haskell, and then there's a gauge downstream at Muskogee. Um, so it just it varies depending on the river, but there are downstream gauges so that we can monitor those flows and make releases in accordance with whatever um, actual uh, flows and, and the capacity is downstream. So that, that's telling you, hey, this is how much room I have in this channel down here exactly. based on runoff. Right. And that's how we know those that information. Yes. Right. So um, what about the other sections you have? So you have the, the stream gauges, you have the your people who, who operate the water control data system website. Uh, they're in the same That's right. uh, section, so, so to speak, right? Yes. So they're all in a section known as the technical services section. So they do manage the, the stream gauging, um, all of the data that it takes to, to um, operate the real-time water management mission. Um, and you wouldn't believe the amount of data. It, it's, it is very data intensive and, and therefore very computing intensive. And, and then also um, we do oversee water supply that is also within the technical services section. So that is one of three sections in hydrology and hydraulics. The other sections are water management, of course, and those are the water managers that are assigned projects, assigned reservoirs, and they make the real-time adjustments to the uh, releases from those projects. And then we also have a study section. It's the H&H engineering section is what we refer to it as, but um, that, that uh, includes real-time inflow forecasting, so we need to know what those flows are into the reservoir so that we can make those water management um, decisions and, uh, and, and therefore make the releases and, and execute that plan. So we have real-time inflow forecasting. We also have studies, both hydrologic and hydraulic studies that we perform for a variety of, of reasons. And um, we also have floodplain management services. And, and so that's, that's, uh, a part of our branch that really interacts directly with the public on a daily basis to address issues within the floodplain and um, help uh, individual stakeholders, help local communities, um, tribal governments, state government um, with issues concerning the floodplain. You know, and I, I hadn't, I, I probably should have included um, this when I was planning, but 
In terms of floodplain management, what do we do and what do we not do, so to speak, with regard to floodplain management? So if a person calls in and they're about to buy a house, like, do they need to come to us or should they go to a county or? So they, they certainly can come to us, but they should always first check with their local floodplain administrator. For example, within the city of Tulsa, um, Tulsa will provide base flood elevation determinations at no cost to residents within the city. And the reason those are important is because if you buy a house and you go out and get a mortgage, if that mortgage is federally backed by federal law, you need to have a floodplain determination. And if you are buying a piece of property within the regulatory floodplain, you are required to carry flood insurance by federal law. So that's why the base flood elevation determination is important. So always check first with your local authorities, your local floodplain administrator. Um, for areas where those services aren't offered, we will prepare those letters for individuals. Um, typically, a surveyor or engineer acting on their behalf will come and request that letter for us. We do charge a nominal fee to do so, um, but that letter can be used in conjunction with the mortgage process when they're buying a home. And what, what kind of lead time does the floodplain manager need to prepare that? Do you, do you have an idea? We, we are as responsive as we can be. We have a very quick turnaround time. So it's uh, certainly within a, a few days or a week that we will turn around that letter. Oh, that's outstanding. Uh, so right now we'll, we'll look at our current situation water-wise. Um, uh, we're, we're using about 16% of our storage capacity in the Arkansas River system. So um, can you explain the, the, the system or the basin, I guess we call it a, a, a basin or a watershed or, or whatever. Can you explain that in terms of uh, size and, and how it works relative to, to the lakes within it? Certainly. So we have two primary basins that we are responsible for in the Tulsa district. That's the Arkansas River Basin. And so we don't leave our friends in Kansas out, the Arkansas River Basin, uh, and also the Red River Basin. And they're huge basins. For example, above Keystone, the total size of the basin is around 75,000 square miles. Now, not all of that contributes um, this far downstream. But just for the sake of comparison, these are really large basins. And so when we have rainfall anywhere within the basin, we're monitoring that rainfall and the runoff. And we need to understand how much water is coming into any one of the reservoirs. In the Arkansas River Basin, we have 30 flood control reservoirs in Kansas and Oklahoma. And they're all regulated down to a single control point, And that is at Van Buren, Arkansas. And so all of the reservoirs above that point, we are managing, and we're managing them not as, as individual reservoirs, we're managing those as a system. So we may have rainfall above Call Lake in South Central Kansas, or we may have rainfall up on the Verdigree, or we may have rainfall over on the, the Neosho or the Grand in Southeast Kansas or Northeastern Oklahoma. And so anywhere that rain falls, it is contributing to the flood control within the system and, and the operation of the system is, is based on part of all of that as it's taken together. So uh, I guess you've kind of answered the next question about how that, how that affects water management process, you know, based on, on where water falls within the system. So uh, I guess an Arkansas River system 
is what, like 13 reservoirs? The lower, right? the, there are 13 lower reservoirs that have about seven and a half million acre feet of flood control storage. And those reservoirs, the lower 13, are all in Oklahoma. And people are familiar with those. They're, they're mostly large reservoirs, Eufaula, Keystone, Fort Gibson, Uligaw. That's where we have that large amount of flood control in the very lower part of the system before it gets passed on downstream to that control point at Van Buren, which has a regulating stage of 22 feet, which corresponds to a flow of around 150,000 cubic feet per second. So that's what we're regulating to downstream. So I think one of the most misunderstood aspects of water management or the execution of flood risk management is how, how we determine when and where to release water on the Arkansas River system. So how is a determination made to release water from say Keystone versus maybe Fort Gibson? Well, I, I do believe that this is misunderstood. Um, you know, you may have a sunny day at Keystone, for example, and yet the pool is rising and stakeholders call and ask you, why aren't you letting out more water here? Well, because it is operated as a system, right? This is a large basin. Um, it's operated as a system. And so while it may not have rained above Keystone, maybe it did rain above Uligaw or it did rain above Fort Gibson. And so what we do in order to manage at that control point downstream at Van Buren is balance the flood control pools. And what that means is when we have rainfall in part of the system, not rainfall in another part of the system, um, we bring the flood pools up at the reservoirs that haven't had a lot of runoff um, to balance that percentage that's occupied with the reservoirs that did have a lot of runoff. And once we get those in a percentage balance, then we bring them all down together. It's a drawdown and it takes weeks to draw these pools down because again, we have downstream constraints. But you know that's the way the system is operated. That's the way it's intended to be operated. That's what Congress gives us as authority to operate this system. That's, that's a congressionally approved water control plan. And so even though individual stakeholders sometimes um, don't understand why we operate that way, it's a tried and tested method um, that, that has been in effect in this district for decades. It works, it's been optimized, and that's how we operate our flood control system. You know, I, I in, in, in looking at that, I think, you know, and I think one of the things we could probably do better in this area is of, it would be nice if we could show people during a typical rainstorm how the operations that we're doing flood-wise, like what they prevented, like if there was no dam there, if we weren't running it the way we run it, um, this is where the water would have been. You know, maybe we should look at that. I know, I know that would be very difficult because you're looking at modeling you're looking at modeling ahead of time and you've got like a short period typically to work with, but it probably would be good if we were to say like, hey, you know, we just had two inches of rain. Um, it, it came down pretty hard if, if, if we weren't here at, if we didn't have Keystone and we weren't running it the way we run it, this is how full the Arkansas River would have been at the time. I mean, I don't know if that's something that you guys know so we do that. Oh, we, yeah. we are required on an annual basis to provide Congress with uh, flood damage reduction numbers. And so I'll give you a for example. A for example, based on the modeling that we're able to do, we have a period of record model where we can model the entire system with either the dams in place or the dams not there at all. And an example is the 2019 
Arkansas River flood. We had a peak release from Keystone Dam of 275,000 cubic feet per second through Tulsa. Had Keystone and the other dams not been in place, that same flood would have resulted in a peak flow through Tulsa of 375,000 cubic feet per second. So 100,000 cubic feet per second more, right? That's Think, of, think yeah, about that along the river in that's, Tulsa. That's, that's, that's uh, what, 60,000 more than was released in 86? And that's right. So in 1986, the peak release was 307,000 CFS. And so if you think about that, think about what kind of damage you have along this, this corridor, this river reach, with a 375,000 CFS release. And, and um, along the same lines, downstream of the control point at Van Buren, the peak uh, flow down there was around 550,000 CFS in 2019 without the upstream dams in place. All of those dams that are providing flood mitigation, uh, the peak flow would have been around a million cubic feet per second. Oh, wow. and, and that's, you know, that's just, yes, it, it was a catastrophic flood. And we all understand that it, it, it was a, a rare, catastrophic event, but but just think about how much more catastrophic it would have been without all of these flood control reservoirs, all of this infrastructure that is in place. If we had had no water in Keystone, and I think you know where I'm going with this question, when 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 the rain started, um, and, I, and I know that kind of goes back, so you're, you're kind of dealing with a rolling time frame, but when, when, when the flood, so to speak, started, um, with no water in the in, behind the dam, how many times would we have had to release and empty Keystone? Yeah, so if we had started Keystone as a dry dam at the beginning of that flood, we, we would have experienced the exact same flood that we saw. Keystone would still have completely cycled seven times. Why? Because the conservation pool in Keystone is only around 440,000 acre feet of water. That's the volume. That's like 10% of the storage, isn't it? Or 12%, something like right. that. Right. So, so up at the top of flood control, you're at uh, 1.4 million uh, acre feet and actually a bit higher if you have an operation called surcharge, which we did where we raised the gates and gained a little bit of additional storage. So the point being is that start Keystone at elevation 723, which is its normal conservation pool, started start it dry. In that flood, you have the exact same outcome. The only difference would have been a minor decrease in the duration. It was a very long duration. Right, so those peak releases occurred for over a week, I think 12 days. So um, if, if you started a dry dam, if you if you save that 440,000 acre feet, what what are you reducing the flood by? Hours in a in a in a one and a half to two week event? That's right. that's the only difference. Right, because I mean, if you said it was what about 400,000 acre Correct. feet, right? Yes. Like, I mean, if you're releasing. Uh, even if you keep it all in the banks, right? If, even if you keep it all in the banks, say you're keeping it at like 100,000 cubic feet per second or something like that. Um, that's, that's you're going to get 400,000 acre feet out in what, like a, a few hours, right? Like, I mean, that you can get that much water out in a few hours. Is yes. that correct? Uh, yes, because when you think about the, the, the rate of the release, so your channel capacity just below Keystone is 120,000 uh, cubic feet per second. That's what it equates to. So if you think about releasing that volume of water um, versus the, the volume that you have in the lower part of the reservoir, because think about how a reservoir is shaped. 
um, it's it's V-shaped, right? It's it's a dam that's, that that is is downstream within a valley. And so at the lower elevations within the reservoir, you simply have less storage than you do when you get up to the the the, the highest elevations that you're designed to go to. Yeah, because it's like a margarita glass, right? Right, so as you get higher within the pool, your surface area gets gets larger and larger and larger, and that's non-linear as, right. as, as you do increase in elevation. Can you talk about the rain predictions? Because they don't tell us how many acre feet of water we're going to receive in each watershed. So what's like, say, the difference between someone saying there's an 80% chance of rain from, from the weather service versus this is how many acre feet we're going to get in a particular reservoir system? or watershed we operate based on what is known as the principle of water on the ground and that is an agency policy that's not a tulsa district uh, decision of the day that's a corps of engineers policy the principle of water on the ground the reason that we do this and, and what that means is we operate based on runoff that is quantifiable we use those stream gauges, we know what water is coming in the reservoirs, and we base our operation off of that. We do that because there's simply too much uncertainty associated with basing release decisions on rainfall forecasts. It doesn't mean that rainfall forecasts aren't valuable. Certainly we look at those, right? That's part of our overall process. We have an idea of rain that's going to fall. But as the state of the science exists, there's too much uncertainty associated with the rainfall forecast, meaning is rain going to fall, right? That probability, that 80%, is rain going to fall? Well, if, if, if you have an 80% chance of rain, I, I think everyone would say, well, it's pretty likely we're gonna have rain. That's great, but how much rain is going to fall? Where specifically is it going to fall? And for how long is it going to fall? So the duration is very important, right? That, that goes to volume. The location is very important. Is it falling above Keystone? Is it falling just to the east above Ulaga in another part of the, uh, the basin, right? That, that affects the system operation. So um, our policy is a reflection of the uncertainty that is associated with rainfall forecast. Yes, we're aware of the um, uh, potential for rainfall, but we are not going to make release decisions based on that. Um, and the simple fact is once we make a release from one of these flood control dams, we can't get the water back. You know, um, and, and that's not our water <laughs> if, if we're at, if we're at normal. And so water. if that's a great point, if we're making a release when we're not even in the flood control pool, but we're trying to make some preemptive release, well, that's water that is owned by someone else. That's under contract for water supply, hydropower. That's somebody else's water, right? They have a legal contract. They've, they've, they've paid for that volume of water. And so um, we just simply cannot operate that way. So in that 80% question, I, th I think, as I understand it, if, if you say there's an 80% chance of rain, something like that means there's an 80% chance someone in the area where that's going is going to feel some amount of precipitation. I don't know if I've ever seen a rain forecast and I'm not trying to be critical of, 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 of rain forecasting, but 
I don't know if I've ever seen a rain forecaster say this is how much, how many acre feet of water are going to fall. And, and you don't, right? So that 80% says, okay, well, we have an 80% chance of rain within a certain distance of any given point. That tells us, again, it is pretty likely there's going to be rainfall in the area. And that's good to know, right? We need to know that. But it tells us nothing about the volume, right? Or the location. Um, specifically, because there's a big difference between is that falling just above Keystone or is that falling just above Skyatook or is that falling just above Ulaga as the crow flies, you're talking about 20 or 30 miles between those three projects, but they're in different parts of the basin and different parts of the system. So the, the location of the rainfall at times is very critical. Have you guys ever been able to nail it down specific sites where if water lands on, on each side, it goes in different directions? like into different water shit. I know that there are maps that we have that show us like this space in here and, the, and they're color coded a lot of times. But uh, have you ever been able to go to a spot and see it? Yes. <laughs> you have? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, a lot because of times. Because it's a few feet, right? Right. A, a, a foot or whatever can make the difference. Right? So, so you know, that's an interesting question. There are parts of our district that are very, very flat. I think the flattest part of the watershed is above Wichita um, on the Ark River. And you would never be able to, I don't think, uh, just by eyeballing it, say, well, I'm in this basin or this basin because it all looks the same, it's so flat. But when you get into Eastern Oklahoma and it's hilly and you're standing on the top of a ridge, Southeast Oklahoma is a great example down in the uh, Hoto River Basin uh, where Worcester is located. Um, it is very obvious uh, which which side is, is one basin or another. So you straddled that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I know that that sounds kind of weird, but <laughs> well, it may be, but uh, that's, uh, you know, you, you never put that past the, uh, the, the engineers or the hydrologists that go on a field trip. What, um, are, are there some things coming up in, in hydraulics and hydrology, um, that you're excited about or you're looking forward to, are you about, are you seeing any, anything coming down the pike that, well, I'm actually excited about what we've been implementing. So, you know, you have really generational shifts in the state of the science. And um, recently, and I say recently, it's it's been a multi-year process, but our district has invested millions of dollars in new modeling techniques um, and the, the, the terrain that goes along with that because you need a good terrain data set to build hydrologic models and hydraulic models. And so we've invested a tremendous amount of resources, both the, you know, the, the, uh, the cost of the resources, but we've developed these um, models in-house with, with our staff. We have those skills. And so this is what is the basis. And we really rolled it out um, on, a, on a big scale for the first time during that 2019 flood. But as we move forward, this is this is a big shift. This is how we're going to do business with our models and how we forecast and how we operate water management. Um, this this will continue um, for, for, for years, for decades until that next big generational shift. So we're in the midst of that right now. It's very exciting. And uh, I think in particular for that 2019 flood, it really 
helped us in what I consider to be a textbook operation of water management and flood control processes. You started out here in 2007, right? That's correct. And you didn't you didn't come into the have you, did were you in H and H? Have you been in H and H? I've always or? been in H and H, yes. So when you came in here, is that was that what you always wanted to do was water management, or were you thinking I might start with the core structural and how did that work out for you? Well, when I had been in graduate school, I had actually studied a variety of different topics, but my real interest was water. So when I took a job with the Tulsa district, um, my interest was H&H. This is where I wanted to be. Um, I, I never really thought about any of the other areas and we do lots of great things across the district in different disciplines, but my interest has always been water. And so um, this is where I've been from the, the beginning of my career with the district. Are you guys looking for new people? And Always, always. You know, so with any organization, you always have turnover um, for different reasons. Retirements, uh, people decide they want to move on to some other challenge or opportunity. It always happens. And so we are always identifying new talent and bringing people on. Um, uh, it's, uh, to me, a, a really fun aspect of the job because uh, we a lot of times bring people in that don't necessarily know that much about the Corps of Engineers or the types of work that we do, even in hydrology and hydraulics, but we get them in. Uh, 2019 was a great example. You talked about um, all of the, the younger uh, staff that we have. Well, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And so for better or worse, a, a major event like that is uh, the perfect opportunity to, to, to learn. And so that, that happened because we have more experienced staff that is able to uh, provide a lot of guidance and mentorship. But the, the, the younger staff, they didn't miss a beat, right? They, they weren't intimidated by that. Um, they just rolled with the punches and it was just a great experience, a learning experience for them and really got them up to speed in a very short amount of time. The uh, the bathymetric surveys and the, the I know we were doing what Keystone and Ulaga were there some other lakes and Caw this this year yeah okay so uh, we do those every so many years that's correct and um, is that information come back yet or are we still waiting on the data for all of that that's still in process but it's okay. very important for us as well because we need to know how much volume is available in the reservoir and so there are two ways you 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 do that above the water surface we use a, a, a laser technique lidar that's usually flown it's very accurate but below the water surface the 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 LIDAR doesn't penetrate that water surface. So below the water surface, we have to use on uh, the bathymetric techniques, uh, the sounding techniques to uh, get a picture of what that reservoir looks like under the water. And we combine all of that data into a, uh, into a, a single view of what does our reservoir look like if it didn't have water in it? What is our volume? Right, it's like kind of like looking at the um, the fish finder in your exactly. Boat. You know, you kind of see the 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 bot, the bed occasionally, right? Right. Um, with the with regard to with regard to those surveys, uh, I, I know a lot of people ask questions about siltation, and is there a reservoir we have um, that it tends to silt more than others? Which one would you say it is? 
None really stand out to me. There are issues um, with some of the reservoirs, and really what you see with the siltation issues is the conservation pool. So we talk about that volume in the reservoir. It's not flood control, but it's a lot of times uh, under contract with someone else. Um, you'll see sediment issues in the conservation pool. You know, all of the reservoirs do have part of the pool that's reserved for sedimentation, and that's the inactive pool down at the very bottom. The, uh, the siltation or sedimentation rates also tend to be uneven. Um, most of your sediment comes into a reservoir a very, uh, in very short periods of time during large floods. And once that water comes into the reservoir and starts to spread out, and not just moving in one direction, but, but, but laterally as well, it slows down. And when you have the lower velocities, all of that sediment starts to drop out. And so um, the consideration of sedimentation was part of the planning process before any of these dams were constructed. Um, it's something we're aware of. It's not a major issue. I mean, we, we do track that, and, and that's one of the reasons why we do regularly update the bathymetry, but um, um, it's nothing that wasn't planned for. My, my understanding is we sort of overestimate it. In some cases, um, there were overestimates of the sedimentation and it hasn't been realized. Yeah, I, I know there was, there was at least one or two leaks I was talking to someone about and they were saying that, that what they're seeing is it's nowhere near what they thought it was going to be. Um, so I, I think I've asked most of the questions that I had, or all of them. Um, what question would you have preferred I asked that I didn't ask? Well, I don't have one. I think these were all great questions and they're, they're, they're topics that I like to talk about. I, you know, I, I will say um, one, one item that, that I can't stress strongly enough, particularly as we move away from 2019, it's starting to get distant in, in people's memories. But think about the areas that flooded, the areas that didn't flood as well. But think about, um, particularly if you were affected during that flood, um, what is your flood risk? Right? There, there are some, some, some areas that have very real flood risk. And these flood control dams, they do what they were designed to do, right? They do mitigate downstream floods. They offer benefits even during major floods, but they don't eliminate floods. And so people really need to think about what their flood risk is. If, if they are in areas that were affected significantly in past floods, well, those probably weren't one-time occurrences, right? Big floods do happen from time to time. And so think about what your risk is. Think about ways to minimize that risk is it uh is it flood proofing your house are you carrying flood insurance you know should you be carrying flood insurance I, unfortunately flood insurance rates are too low um there there are a lot of people who need to be carrying flood insurance they don't carry it flood insurance and in tulsa you get a huge discount tulsa is is, is becoming a class one flood insurance um community there are only, it will be one of only two in the nation and by far the largest. That's a great thing for Tulsa, but it offers citizens a huge discount on the flood insurance premium. But even with that, we have too many people that should be carrying flood insurance that don't carry flood insurance. So what that means is um, your homeowner's policy, it's not, it doesn't cover floods. Right? People think they do, they, they don't, they exclude floods. And so when you carry flood insurance, it, it 
protects you up to $250,000 on the structure and $100,000 on the content. So think about if you've been affected by floods in the past, even if it didn't flood your house, but it was a little too close for comfort, you know, can you stand that kind of a financial hit if you have a flood? So that's a message that we really need to continue to tell people and to just make sure they understand what their flood risk is. The flood risk below our reservoirs, it's it's reduced over natural conditions. That's a purpose of these flood control reservoirs, but the, the risk isn't zero either. There's always risk and people need to understand what that is. And, and you know, like <clears throat> we use terms like 100 year flood or 500 year floodplain or whatever, but the reality is too, as time goes on, we have more data to work with, right? And so like there's a, a there's a, a major flood or a major uh, weather event that the construction of Keystone was based upon, right? That's how they decided this is how big Keystone needs to be. This is what we need to do. This is the release capability. They base it on that. But as time goes by, you may have an event that's much larger than that event, right? So so it, it changes what we're what we're seeing in terms of um, the data that we have. That's right. We get too hung up on specific numbers. So when we talk about the so-called 100 year flood, well, what that really means is in any given year, you have a 1% chance of either equaling or exceeding that flood. Now, I think that unfortunately what has happened is people see that as a static value, it never changes. But the reality is that's always going to be an estimate. We're always striving to provide the best estimate and it's therefore it's always going to change, particularly after a large event, you will see changes in the estimate of what that number is. And so to bring it back to a bigger picture, instead of getting so hung up on the specific number, what is my flood risk? Now, you know, I can tell you without any computation, areas that I saw in 2019 that have real flood risk. And so I think that's where the conversation needs to come back to. What is my flood risk? Do, do, do I, you know, do I live in an area without any, any sort of number here? Do I live in an area that I know is flood prone? And, and, you know, that goes back to the resiliency of a community. When you think about uh, people, their livelihood, their homes, where all of their possessions in their homes are, I mean, those are, in, 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 in some cases, those are huge blows to someone when their house floods, they lose all of, the, all of their possessions and they're not carrying flood insurance. That's a, that's a terrible thing. Yeah, and, and, and that, that, is, that is very, um... That, that's very rough to deal with too. And I, I had people call, I remember doing, even in 15, um, I had people call and, and saying, I mean, I remember women, a woman calling me and crying on the phone saying, for, in Arkansas. Yeah. She was saying, I heard you guys are sending a lot of water our way. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking because there's really nothing you can, you can tell somebody in that situation. The, at this point, things are going to happen and, and, and we can't exactly. do anything about it. Um, I do, I do want to ask a question about 19 and because in, in your time, since you've been here, um, in the 14 years you've been here, you, had you ever seen anything like 19 or in the, in that 14 years? 
No. So I started just after the 2007 flood. That was a major flood. It, it affected, you know, another part of the basin. We've, we've had major floods. You brought up 2015. We had major flooding in 2015. The reason that 2019, um, I think, had such a huge impact, number one, it was, it was a major flood, right? I mean, just a tremendous volume of water in the, in the entire system. But it also affected um, the most populated part of, of the basin, of the reach. And when you look at, at flood damages and flood damages that are prevented, you know, Tulsa County accounts for more of those potential flood damages than any other county in eastern Oklahoma or southeastern Kansas within this part of the Arkansas River Basin. And so uh, the, the location had a lot to do with that, a lot with, to do with the visibility and um, really the coverage th that occurred. So, so no, I haven't experienced anything like that beforehand. Hopefully won't during my time here, but that's the thing with floods. You never know. I mean, a flood like that will happen again. There's, there's no question. But the question is, well, is it going to happen this fall or is it going to happen in 73 years, right? We just, uh, I, I don't know, right? If I knew that question, you know, I wish I didn't know the answer to that question, but um, the, the the reality is we just we don't know. And so what we can do is be prepared, as prepared as we can be. And part of that is, again, communicating this risk to people who live in um, flood prone areas so that, you know, we don't get stuck in a cycle of only trying to do this when a flood's happening. It needs to be done before the flood happens. In 19, um, what I, one thing I remember is that, you know, typically it would seem like a fl the flooding would be maybe one or two watersheds, right? In, 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 in 19, it was every one of the reservoir watersheds. It was like in, in, all the way up into Kansas. So you were not, you're, you weren't getting any relief coming in from Kansas because you, because you know, all that comes in a call and then um, over on the, on the Grand Neo show. Um, so we weren't getting any relief on either. All those watersheds were getting hit together. It was just like every rain system that came through, it covered everything. So we would get calls. Why isn't this reservoir, um, which is at 40% uh, of its flood storage capacity, why is it releasing when we're at 51% at, at of flood storage capacity? And, and we talk about trying to keep it balanced, but at the same time, there's there's other factors downstream of 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 you maybe at, at Fort Gibson or or at Hudson or whatever. So, and, and 19 was just it was just crazy like that. You you didn't get any relief from any particular location. That's that's correct. And so what what I would like to stress about that 2019 flood is it was a rare flood, but it wasn't an anomaly. I, I can show you records from. Uh, a storm event in 1943 that occurred here. Um, a lot of people, um, probably not enough people, but a lot of people uh, do remember 1986. And then of course, 2019, they're all similar, not the same, but similar types of events in terms of coverage, magnitude and duration. And so what we what we need to keep in mind is these really big floods, these catastrophic floods. Yeah, they are rare. Thankfully, they're rare, but they're not one-off floods. It will happen again. 
Um, it's just a question of when will that happen? And so we have to be as positioned as we can be in terms of what we're able to do here in our with our water management mission, but also communicating this risk to the public. We need to be um, on, on top of that so that it's not a surprise. Well, I, I think that answers, I think that is, that's all the questions I have. I want to thank you for taking the time to come in. I know this was, we did a short, we did a really short notice turnaround, like, hey, can you do this? And, and you came in and, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time out. Uh, please say hi to all the people in uh, in H&H for me. Well, I really appreciate the invitation today to talk about um, hydrology and hydraulics and in specific um, our water management mission and how we operate. It's an important message. And we always welcome uh, questions from anyone, anytime, anywhere. If you have a question about how we operate, let us know. I, I, I will be quick to respond to you. And um, we want people to understand what we do and why we do it. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Construction. Construction is a production of the Public Affairs Office of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. To learn more about the Tulsa District, visit us on the web at www.swt.usace.army.mil. You can find us on most social media sites at USACE Tulsa, all one word. Thanks again for joining us, and as always, if you're out on the water, remember to wear your life jacket.